Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about zealots then and now. Scott, I, I got to say, we're kind of making a pretty big sacrifice uh, getting on and talking about this um, topic today uh, on this day here in March 15th. That's when we're recording because it's the, the opening day of the March Madness. You gotten into any of that, Scott? You a college basketball fan? Who do you have on your bracket? Well, uh, it started two nights ago. That's how much of a fan I am <laughs> with the final four play-ins, which yeah. are go- goofy for me. But um, I I don't fill out a bracket that way. I go just round by round. So I picked everybody in the first round, and then I'll then when those games are over, I pick the second round. I don't uh, I don't do it from the beginning to the end. I just I don't have any interest in doing that. I I would pick Villanova to win it all. Yeah, but, I got them uh, in one of my brackets. I I don't. I like watching the game, so it's not that big a deal. But right now, I'm watching. And Oklahoma is losing to Rhode Island. I saw so, that. I did pick it's Oklahoma on my in this my year. little iPad right here. So yeah, we got. I mean, my big upset uh, is I'm a from Missouri, obviously. So they made it in the bracket, and I said I'm I'm just going to go with my heart here and have them upset Xavier if they make it into that next round. So well, Xavier's good, but uh, Missouri Missouri plays in a tough conference, and they're pretty good, so they got a chance. Yeah, well, there's here's the tie-in I'm going to make, this transition, if you're ready for it. So there's All definitely right. plenty of people who maybe have zealot-like tendencies when it comes around to March Madness. And this week we're talking about the zealots. Uh, what do you think about that transition? We got um, oh, March Madness zealots w- versus ancient first century zealots. Maybe a little bit of a difference. There's uh, That was a smooth transition, Chaz. Smooth. <laughs> Okay, silky smooth. Well, yeah. So, what do we need to know about the zealots? What are the yeah, the, the big uh, things? Because honestly, out of these four different groups, this is the one that I probably are the least familiar with. And so, um, somebody like me who just doesn't know a lot, what would what would you say to us that we need to know about the zealots? Well, um, I would say there's some stereotypes that are used in some hard categories that scholars have have uh, I think clearly dismantled. So let let me put it this way. Uh, Zealots are a group or a movement in a 300-year history of Jewish resistance movements, Jewish resistance movements against occupation of Israel and the land of Israel. So there's a 300-year period so let's say 200 BC to three to 100 AD. That's just roughly. And during this period, there were a number of groups that resisted rule by foreigners. So you have the Maccabees uh, in about 170 BC. You can't call them zealots, but they're zealotic. And then Josephus talks about the fourth philosophy. And uh, the fourth philosophy uh, is not called the Zealots uh, by Josephus, but it sounds like the Zealots. 
And then alongside the fourth philosophy, and I'll talk about the fourth philosophy here in a second, is uh, there's there were there was an abundance at times of social bandits or guerrilla bandits in the Judean desert who would swoop down on travelers and steal things. And then in 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 the temple area in Jerusalem, there were a group of people that Josephus calls the Sakari, who uh, you could call dagger men who carry who buried little knives in their belts, their belt, their tunics, and uh, and uh, used them surreptitiously to stab people. And then in the Jewish war, about 70 AD, uh, 66, 67 AD or so, Josephus starts talking about a group he calls the Zealots. So that's five groups that could be called part of a general movement called the Re- resistance movements, but uh, it would be inaccurate to call all these groups zealots uh, as a party, but you could say they're all zealotic. And on top of that, uh, it is unfair to say they all have the same set of beliefs. So let me look at, Josephus talks about four parties, you know, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the fourth philosophy. And here's how he describes them. He says the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy was led by a guy named uh, Judas the Galilean. And they were Pharisee-type people. That's an important category that, for, for Josephus. They had, a, they had an attachment to liberty or freedom, and that means political and social freedom, religious freedom, that God was their only ruler and lord, and they did not care about dying. So that is the fourth philosophy. And, and later scholars, and many scholars today, and uh, the most, the strongest proponent of this, who, who uh, tended to work toward a more comprehensive vision with great detail, was Martin Hengel, who, who kind of brought them all together. But... Um, it is only later that we have, after Jesus, that we have Josephus calling a group the Zealots. And and they were led by a guy named, El- they started by Eliezer, the son of Simon. And then he handed that over, or, or the next leader was John of Geshala. So I think we have to admit right up front that there are resistance movements one of the resistance movements was zealots, but the zealots as we know them today, or as the way we, mostly the way we talk about them in the Jewish war, really did not have a, an official, I would say, a clearly distinguishable start until the Jewish war. In that sense, we have to be very careful about describing anybody at the time of Jesus as officially a zealot. Now, Jesus, in the Gospels, um, had one of his disciples who was called Simon the Zealot. Luke yeah, I was 16. about to ask about Simon, how he and, fit in those categories. Yes. So, yeah. Now, the, the, the category here is, what do you mean by the word zealot? And, and most of the time, when people start describing a zealot, the first thing they do is they go to Josephus's war, or Josephus's antiquities, and especially to the war, and start describing the zealots of the Jewish war and imposing that on earlier uh, groups in the Jewish world. So it is more accurate, unless you're saying 
thing that Luke wrote after the Jewish War, and he called this guy Simon the Zealot in light of later usage of the term. It is probably more accurate to say that Zealot here is a is a, a lowercase z rather than an uppercase z. Mm -hmm. He's not a Republican. He is Republican. He is not a Democrat. Uh, officially, he's Democrat. In other words, he's not a part of a party. He's not official. He has the the characteristics of what later came to be called the Zealots, but he is, I, I would say, zealotic in his in his approach. Let me let me sort of describe uh, how the that group in the, about 70 A.D. is um, is described by Josephus is that they they were a party that revolted against other rebels and warriors who were in the battle with Rome um, and Titus. They were they occupied the uh, Jerusalem's temple for a, a period, so they you know, they seized the upper hand. Uh, they believed that the leadership in Jerusalem at the time, Ananus or Ananus, was ineffective and incapable of bringing off victory and conquest against the Romans, so they revolted for a, another way. And so, I, as I mentioned, they were led by a guy named uh, John of Gashala. So, this seems to be a general character, a general characterization of zealots. And uh, at this point, I think the, the best thing for me to do is to, let's just say, let's, let's describe uh, the general to the more specific and what a zealot would mean. How about that? Yeah. Well, is there anywhere else in the New Testament other than Simon the Zealot that we might get um, a run-in between Jesus or um, any of the early church big players and, and zealots? Well, this is where... Everything hinges upon your definition. Sure. Uh, let me give an example. See, Josephus says that they agreed with the Pharisees. All right, so in a sense, their theology, their praxis, their belief about the law, etc., their commitment to God was very like the Pharisees, but they went a step further. They started to use violence, and they had violence against Rome in a military way. So... Uh, let's just say that the Apostle Paul, in breathing out murders and, and, and threats against the early Christians, has zealotic-like tendencies in him. Uh, you could see it a little bit in Paul, um, but I, I don't think that it would be accurate to start uh, assigning people to zealots until, as a capital Z, until we get... Uh, till later in the first century. Sure. So with that, I, I think it would be wise to avoid uh, attributing or assigning anybody to the zealot party. But let me let me say this, that zealots, and this is where I, I this is sort of a theology of, ze of the zealots. The zealots tapped into a long line of holy war. This is a part of the biblical tradition. Goes back back to Joshua. We know about uh, Phineas. We know about the Maccabees. This is a group of people who knew that in the Old Testament, sometimes the people of God had to pick up swords, had to pick up uh, weapons, chariots, whatever they would later use, and go to war for the sake of God and for the sake of the nation. 
And there can be no question, and I think this is a part of what Josephus said when Josephus uh, talks about the fourth philosophy, and he says that God is to be their ruler and Lord. Their only ruler would be God. I think then that it, it is important to say that the zealots tapped into the first commandment as well as tapping into holy war. If God alone is to be glorified and God alone is the Lord, then it is, um, it is an offense to biblical religion for somebody else to be the Lord over the people of God. So that's, that would be my first point, is that there's a history and a heritage that they can tap into the way, let's say, contemporary evangelical Christians might want to tap into the Reformation mm -hmm. or tap into Augustine. They want, to, they want to tap into that line. A second is I would say that it's important to, to talk about zealots as militaristic defenders of Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, and the Torah. Um, they are militaristic. They want to pick up swords. They want to go to war. They want to go battle. Uh, they're not afraid of dying, so they're, they're warriors. And in that sense, they are zealotic activists. Of uh, The person, James the Zealot, or, or, or uh, with the time of Jesus, uh, Simon the Zealot, sorry, not James, um, Simon the Zealot, then I would say no matter no matter if you don't want to assign him to the later zealots and you just want to give him this name zealot, uh, I would say had the, had militaristic tendencies in him. In other words, he was willing to pick up a sword. He was a passionate guy. He said, let's go beat him. Let's go kill him. Uh, that's the way to approach uh, this issue. Now the third care. So the first is they tap into a heritage. The second is that they're militaristic. The third feature of a zealot, is they believe that violence could both purge the uh, nation and eliminate the enemies for the glory of God. So they believed in violence. And this is, I believe, the singular characteristic of a zealot that separated a zealot from a Pharisee, is that they were so committed to the law and so committed to God's glory, and so committed to the temple and to the people of Israel, to the boundaries of the Holy Land, that they were willing to use violence to protect the nation. A fourth is, is their zeal. The, the Greek word zelotes and the Hebrew word kana, these words describe people of deep passion, uh, you know, huge passion. I've run into people like this before, you know, they are just ready to go to battle mm -hmm. and they, they can be kind of frightening uh, at times, but they're ready to go to battle. And this is a characteristic of these people is their zeal. It's a theologically based passion to honor God, no matter the cost to a person's life. Um, my father, my wife's father were a part, they, they participated at a lower level in World War II because neither one of them had to go to Germany or to Japan or to the Pacific uh, Theater. I don't like calling it the theater, but that's what it's called, uh, for war. Uh, but sometimes my father or my father-in-law would talk about the zeal 
of his contemporaries, of their contemporaries, who soon as soon as it was requested that we go to war, long lines of people were formed and they were ready to go. And I remember uh, in Afghanistan, in the Afghan war, in uh, in our uh, battles recently mm -hmm. uh, in in the Middle East, I remember students that I had who were ready to go. And they said, if they ask me to go, I'm ready to go and I'll do anything to defend my nation. And so uh, I, I saw in that that sort of zealot. All right. A fifth is this. A fifth characteristic is that their piety and their politics were indistinguishable. To fight for Israel was spiritual. To be spiritual was to fight for Israel. So they did not distinguish between nation, between politics and piety. A sixth, and this is this brings us into the modern world, is that they were realists. Um, Anabaptists, who are pacifists, um, could be accused of being idealists or utopian, and that in the sense that they say we as Christians need to live above the fray, and we need to avoid the use of violence. And it is by not using violence that violence will end. Many people, and uh, I've run into plenty of them in my life, uh, would say, no, that's, uh, that's idealism, that's utopianism. We live in a real world that's fallen and broken. And realism means you're going to have to pick up, you're going to have to join the army because otherwise we're going to be destroyed. And then the last point that I would make is that there's a theological core to it all, and that is God's will is for God to rule. And anything contrary to God's will and rule is worthy of elimination. Now we're starting to talk about Constantinianism. We're starting to talk about uh, uh, a, a combination of uh, militarism and one's Christian faith. Uh, and, that's, and that's where, this is where the zealots were in the first century, the, the zealots of 60 67 to 73 or whatever, as long as they lasted. This was a group of people who believed that God, God's will was for God to rule, and he was to rule in, in the temple in Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem was the navel or the center of the earth, and anything against that was a violation of God's will, and they were willing to fight for it. Now, the big picture that we have here and I believe this is, is the case, uh, but this, this gets into some debates, is that this is, uh, the zealots are anti-Jesus, hmm. or Jesus is anti-zealot, is that his approach was not with a sword, but with a cross, so that he had a completely different strategy. And I think it's seen in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. In the parable of the weeds and the wheat, the, uh, the farmers, the people who have the land, discover that someone has planted weeds in the field. And it's growing up amongst the wheat. And what do they want to do? They want to go into the field and rip them out. And this is strong language. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That is not your job. Your job is peaceful coexistence until God's judgment at the end of the time. And then God will send his angels and they'll do the judging, not you. Now, uh, there are a number of New Testament scholars, Matthew scholars, parable scholars, who would say that that is, a, that is an overt or extrovertedly clear, explicitly clear 
anti-zealot parable. And I tend to think that that interpretation has a lot to a lot going for it. So I I stand with those who think that Jesus was consciously anti-zealot in his approach and that he advocated for a peace program, a peaceful program, that we would live together in reconciliation and joy and love, and as a result, offer to the world a counter-paradigm. Which all leads us, Chaz, to questions from you. Yeah, that was a lot of uh, great information there, those different seven ways to um, focus in and understand the the zealots. I know one of the things that we talked about last week as we were ending was that um, association or maybe similarity between a lot of activist movements going on today and the zealot um, movement that happened in the first century. And so I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and that connection that you see between different you know, ways people are trying to get things done now, make change, and yeah. how the zealots went about it and how Jesus may want to speak into that. Yeah. Now, let, let's just say this, that um, that the Pharisees were activists. Mm-hmm. The zealots are activists. And the Sadducees are activists. The Sadducees used their political status to make things happen. The Pharisees used their passion and their piety and their um, popularity with ordinary people to make things happen. But you could say that the Essenes were activists in a completely different way. They were sure. they withdrew as their form of activism. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so in looking at our culture today, where would we find the zealots? I, I think it is fair to say that people who are just absolutely passionate about changing our country and, and working hard in the political sector could be called zealotic. Uh, and that's a fair use of the English word. They have, they have zeal and passion to, to change things and to make things happen. But the only persons today that I would connect with the zealots would be people who connect their faith to militaristic battles. Right. So in other words, the kind of nationalism that says we're going to go pound that nation because they're not like us. We're going to go pound that nation or that people because they don't believe the way we do or practice the way we do, or they don't support our capitalistic uh, uh, economy or our approach to ethics, or our approach to nation building, or our approach to boundaries and and walls, et cetera. So that that is where I think we move from being an activist to being a zealotic activist, and we start sounding like the zealots. Now, there are are crazy people in the United States who are are, uh, very much like first century zealots or Sakari who use guns against innocent people. That's what the Sakari did in the temple. And that starts to border on what the zealots did. But the zealots got involved in a military battle with Rome. And it is in that level that I think we would want to find parallels today. So when Christians um, get too militaristic in their approach to the Christian faith— that they equate the nation with the church, the church with the nation, 
What's good for the church is good for the United States. What's good for the United States is good for the church. And think that being a an American is the same thing as being a Christian. Red, white, and blue, you who. It, it, that sort of mentality is starting to move in the direction of a zealot. So I don't want to say that my progressive friends are zealots. I would say they could be, I have uh, progressive friends who I would say are zealotic. Uh, they're really into this, and that's all they want to talk about on Facebook. And uh, they just, they're just obsessed with Donald Trump, or they're obsessed with Barack Obama, or they're obsessed with uh, the political process and winning that way, and think that in winning there, that it's actually sort of an achievement of the kingdom of God, even if they don't want to admit it. But I, I would say that's when we begin to border on the zealotic and the zealot uh, movement of the first century. Well, and that goes into the whether their passion is clearly there. Um, the yeah, whole purging yeah. idea that if we just purge our nation or w- whatever, then we'll be more what God wants us to be, and which usually means we'll have the power that we've been used to having and are comfortable and everything's that fits in the world like we think it should. Um, yeah. And we'll bring about the kingdom of God or we'll bring about the will of God. This exactly. is why the brother of Jesus, James says, uh, anger does not accomplish the will of God. Yeah. In James chapter one. Now that's my, that's my translation. But what he's saying is he, that's an anti-zealot stance is that you cannot bring about the will of God by doing violence against other people. That is not the way the will of God is accomplished. So anger does not achieve uh, what God wants uh, for us as God's people. And it's not like Jesus is against being passionate, it seems like, by any means, but it's just being able to channel that into the the right way. And if you do get anger, I I mean, there's things that that should trouble us and that should anger us, but it's what we do with our anger, it seems like, that Jesus cares the most about, that wants to redirect us, I guess, is... Maybe the well, way I, I make sense of it, I don't know if that... that no, I think you're right, is that uh, in, in some ways, uh, Chaz, passions are neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I at one time described Jesus as a zealot, uh, not as a capital Z, but he was a zealot for mm-hmm. the will of God, uh, totally passionate, willing to, to put his life on the line. To overturn the for, temple. I mean, that's, that's, a, a, that's, that's a pretty zealotic. passionate act. That's a zealotic act. So, yes... I'm, I think that zeal um, has a part to play in genuine Christian piety, mm-hmm. in genuine Christian spirituality and Christian living. There is a place for zeal. Uh, when zeal gets combined with the military, when it gets combined with violence, when it gets combined with uh, even secretive, manipulative coercion against other people— it starts to become zealot. And that's where that's where we as Christians need to keep our eyes open and our ears open to see and hear uh, worldliness in our Christian approach to how we carry about our business. Um, I think the pluralistic world uh, that we live in in the West, where we tolerate people who differ with us and disagree with us is a world that can frustrate humans 
frustrate Americans, frustrate Europeans, and they can seek to accomplish what they want for the nation through passion and activism that sometimes uh, spills over into violence. And it's at that point that we have misused our democracy and instead turned it turned ourselves into zealots who are unworthy of the name of Christ. So I'm, I'm for us having passion and zeal and commitment, but um, I'm, I, I think that the story of the zealots is a really good warning to tendencies and temptations in uh, Christianity today. Now, Chaz, this is interesting to me, is because at times pastors can take on this zealot coercive powers that's very true um, purging the church of the people that that they don't like or who aren't going along with their programs yeah and say let you know the best thing for that person is to find another church well 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 uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we need there are times when separation is unavoidable um, for the sake of peace but it should not be separation eternally or purposefully forever, but it should be separation for the purpose of cooling our heads and hearts so that we can come back together over a table and work at forming unity and peace and um, joining up with one another again. So I'm for, um, I'm for passion and I'm for zeal, but I'm not for it becoming uh, zealotry. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that I've really been encouraged by in these last three conversations that we've had about the different groups is how in each of their own ways, Jesus is calling and maybe inviting uh, the members of those groups to um, to the, the kingdom life that he has. You know, we all want to feel like we're winning. And I think each of these different groups have chosen their own way. Like you said, the Sadducees yeah. with political yeah. clout and uh, the Pharisees with their uh, mastery and control over the, the law and the interpretation of that, or the zealots with the militaristic might being able to, to win and, and do things for God. And I think Jesus is seeing all of those and he's saying, there's a better way and it's me. And the true way of the kingdom is to live as I live. And um, that challenges each of these groups in its unique way. And what he's inviting us to do too, is to be challenged in our own way that we've kind of talked about. I'm glad we've gotten into that because we all do need to be challenged on the ways that we've let creep into our our life that make us feel like we're winning when in reality they're not the things of Jesus and his kingdom. I, I totally agree, Chaz, and I think that's right, is that is that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Zealots would have all heard Jesus call them to his way, but they each would have heard a call from their way mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a different kind of call, mm-hmm. is that he was calling the Pharisees to see himself as the law, and to see a community formed around him with a slightly uh, different interpretation of law. The, the zealots would have heard Jesus say the way to solve the problem with Rome. Now, I don't think the zealots existed at the time of Jesus as we know them, but the zealotic option was totally alive. Resistance movements were totally alive. Violence as a method was totally alive. Is that his, his approach would have said, that's, that's not the way we're going to conquer. 
Rome. It's not the way we're going to do uh, the will of God. It's not the way we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. We're going to bring it in by, by the cross, by the way of obedience to God, by following Jesus in his path. And the, and the Sadducees would have learned that, uh, you know, that Jesus has a completely different understanding of power and structure and authority, and that, uh, that, the, that all people are welcome to Jesus, not mm-hmm. just people of heritage and money and status and power. So he, he offered each of them uh, the same kingdom, uh, but they would have heard it from their own world in a different way. Yeah, so so good, and that's how the kingdom took root then, and that's how he's inviting us to um, be faithful as the kingdom in our world today. So looking forward to our conversation next week on the Essenes, to leave people with a, a little cliffhanger. What do they, why do they need to come back and hear about the Essenes? Well, the, the Essenes are a warning about our desire to solve our problems by getting as far from people as possible, as far from the world as possible. So the Essenes are a warning about withdrawal. So we'll, we'll start with that when we get, we get here next week. Mm-hmm. Certainly plenty of people who think we just need to withdraw. So that'll be a good conversation. Uh, anything else to wrap up today, Scott? No. And, uh, it's just that, uh, you know, at Northern Seminary, in our master's cohort and in my D-Min cohort, and I hope some of the people out in the audience are considering Northern Seminary, and uh, we've got a lot of new things coming up to announce in the next few months. But um, at Northern, we try to focus on uh, theology in context, the Bible in context, mission in context, understanding context is important for understanding mission. And so understanding the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Zealots, they came from different worlds, and Jesus's mission was to speak to them in their world with a slightly different uh, angle on the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to learn to appreciate through our education at Northern is to develop an understanding of mission as being done specifically in a context and for a context. Yeah, that's a, honestly, that's one of the things that drew me to Northern so much. And um, yeah, we'd love to help you in any way if that's something you're interested in and definitely an important part to accomplish what we're trying to do here. Well, thanks again, Scott, and good to have you with us, listeners. We always enjoy uh, getting to be with you and have you join us on the podcast. Uh, So we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 